God is good, amen? amen? All the time, God is good. Turn your Bibles to Amos chapter 1. Tonight we'll finish up chapter 1. I had a series of interesting emails in the afternoon today. And I think that what is coming, and I'm fairly certain that I'm accurate, is a divide in the body of Christ that points us towards the end. That there will be those who are really followers of Jesus, and there will be those who are pretending to be followers of Jesus. There will be those who will cling to the Word, for it is life, and it is all that we have need of to know of life and godliness, and there will be those who will make up their own version of what they think God thinks. And as I was reading a couple of those emails, and I watched a video, it became very clear to me that I know exactly which side I stand on and which side this church stands on. And that is that we are going to keep preaching the Word of God, the full counsel of the Word of God. So long as I have breath and I'm the pastor of this church, that's what's going to happen. And frankly, I kind of throw down the gauntlet to those who think it necessary to become politically correct. I think it necessary to dumb down the Word of God to make it fit every person's purpose. Uh, who desire to, in essence, walk that line of existentialism to try and make the gospel palatable by making it something that it's not. And along those lines is the place that national Israel has in the world. And I believe that probably like no other doctrine uh, in our day and time, uh, the doctrine of replacement theology that says Israel uh, is no longer of interest to the body of Christ, that they've been absorbed, replaced, taken over by the church, and that the promises given to Israel now apply uh, only to the church. I don't know of anything that's more damaging uh, to the world view than that. And so tonight, as we step back in time, some 2,700 years ago, and as we take on chapter 1 here in the book of Amos, I found it quite interesting that what the prophet Amos said not only was true under the Assyrian onslaught of Tilglas Pileser, but is also true in our day and time today. And it will remain true until our Lord comes again. What he said, what the prophet said, he said because God said it. He didn't say it because it was the words of Amos the prophet. He said them because they are the words of the Lord God Most High under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the prophet Amos was absolutely in tune with his world. He understood fully by the Spirit because he was a godly man who cared about the things of God. And I ask you a question tonight. 
Do you care enough about the things of God to view the world through the lens of Scripture, or will you let the world tell you what Scripture says? Because Scripture speaks for itself. And I fear that a vast majority of Christendom is going the direction of the purpose-driven life, going the direction of the church that needs to be affirmed by the world, the church that needs to be absorbed and pleasing to the world. Amos almost went out of his way to speak the truth. In, in a sense, to his countrymen. And as you read these words, you find somebody who was about as politically incorrect as one could get. Someone who believed that God had spoken, and he spoke what God had spoken. Our world is filled with Christians who want to change what God's Word says. It's not going to happen here. And so I pray that as we undertake the study of His Word, that we'll take it simply for what it says. What was the intent of Amos the prophet? It was to warn national Israel that those who were around him, around them, did not intend them good. And they still to this day do not intend them good. They intend to destroy, and the proof is in the pudding. And so tonight, verses 3 through 15, as we finish up here the first chapter of the book of Amos. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that what you declared in Genesis 1-1 is as true today as when it was penned. We, we gladly accept your truth, Lord, as the final authority on all things pertaining to life and godliness. And Lord, as we study your word, would you instruct us through the power of it? Would we not change one yot, one tittle? God, would we have a complete and total dependence upon the truth of your word for those things which we want to know about who you are, what you are, what you want us to be, and how you want us to live. And so, God, as we study, speak to us, we pray, by the power of your word. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Notice it says there, thus says the Lord. It's the final answer to every issue. It's not, thus says Congress, It's not, thus says the Supreme Court. It's not, thus says Governor Jerry Brown. Yeah, thank God. It, It is not, thus says any man. It is, thus says the Lord. And when the Lord thus says, that ends the issue. It's not debatable. As I shared with you, when the gospel is preached, it's proclaimed. It is truth that is spoken. That truth is spoken. And as it is spoken, it is to simply be received and believed. It's not up to us to alter what God's Word says. It's up to us to receive what God's Word says and then do it. And so the prophet speaking, 
would have been very unpopular in our day and time. Amen? Uh, you can kind of see he's not uh, really interested in appeasing to the, the beer-guzzling crowd, the party animals. He's not... He is not the friend of the coexist. We're all just worshiping the same God group, okay? I'm telling you, the God of Islam is not Yahweh, Lord of hosts. He's a demonic entity. And He is not the same God that we worship. The God that people claim is in the trees, the tree spirit, is not Jehovah God. It's demonic at its core. And so as we study God's Word, we're looking for what God says, not what man has tried to make us believe God accepts. And there is a huge difference between those two places. And frankly, the world is not your friend. Too many Christians walk around today while just trying to make nice with the world. Let me tell you something. You cannot make nice with the world. 1 John chapter 2 very plainly states, John is the author, the same one who authored the gospel, the same one who authored the book of Revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 15, says very plainly, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is that, is that plain enough for us? And yet so many people love the world. They want to make nice with the world. They want the world to be their friend. The world is not your friend. For all, it goes on in verse 16 to say, For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Not he who just hears it, he who does it. The doer of the word. And frankly, I'm sick to death of the Christian who says, well, I accepted Jesus, but I really don't think I need to forsake my sin. I accepted Jesus, but I'm going to live like everybody else lives because I don't want anybody being discontent with me. Amos was not that kind of person. He saw the world for what it was. He saw the nations around him for who they were. And as we look at what he says, we need to take a strong stand when God has spoken. I think it's time for the church to stand up. Syria means evil towards Israel. They intend with everything that is within them to, as Iran has said, as Egypt has said, as Jordan has done. You realize that the king of Jordan is the one who paid for the gold that is on the Dome of the Rock Mosque. They intend to see to it that Israel is wiped off the face of the earth. Amos knew that. God spoke it, and it remains true to this day. 
Notice what it says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and four, in other words, seven, the total number of completeness, they are transgressed against God and they surround the nation Israel. I will not turn away from its punishment. In other words, God has said that the nation of Syria is going to be punished and they're going to be punished specifically for how they have treated Israel. Because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire from the house of Hazel, which will devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the gate of the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria, shall go captive into Kur, says the Lord. Now why do we care about this? Because, frankly, it's still waiting to happen in its totality and completeness. Those words were fulfilled directly after the incursion that the Assyrian army made in through what is now modern-day Assyria, the capital of which is Damascus. Been in the news lately, amen? Uh, You understand a little bit about the Middle East and its politics. If you understand that Syria is a rogue nation that is weaponized by Iran, that then supplies weapons to Lebanon, which both of them have stood in the way of Israel and, and their sanctity of their little meager strip of land. And so when you review the history of the Jewish kings, when you look at modern-day Syria, and you realize that though these things at that time you can see them in Second Kings chapter 10 and chapter 13. You can see them in chapter 8 as Elijah speaks. Uh, Damascus was the capital of Syria. It remains so to this day. It's the oldest inhabited city on the planet, about which prophetically has been spoken that one day it shall become as a ruinous heap. Uh, it has never become as a ruinous heap, but it will one day because God said so. And whether our president wants to see that or not, whether our secretary of state wants to see that or not, whether the Arab world wants to believe that or not, thus says the Lord. They are not Israel's friend. They are Israel's enemy. They have always been and remain so to this day. Hazel tore and mangled the bodies of the Israelites who fell into his hands with such cruelty uh, that it's almost unimaginable. This Syrian king, this Assyrian king, if you will, took Israelites, put them on twin poles, put them in the desert sun, and then had his archers take target practice on them. But only about two or three arrows per day. He would take children, wrap them in animal skins that had just been skinned off of an animal, wrap them in the skins with their heads only exposed, leave them in the hot sun so that while they shrank, it pushed their intestines out through their mouth. Not a pleasant sight. Modern day Syria has the same designs on Israel. And to prove that to you, if you look at the world today and the way it is, many of you may know this, some of you probably don't, I would imagine that more than half of you don't. 
The largest tank battle ever fought on the planet Earth was the Battle of the Bulge. The second largest tank battle fought on planet Earth was the Battle of El Alamein in North Africa with the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, on one side and the British forces on the other. The third largest tank battle to ever occur in the history of mankind was fought at the Valley of Tears. Oz 77, the 77th Brigade of the Israeli Army. It was fought during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Israel was invaded overnight by a little over a thousand tanks. When those tanks reached the border of modern-day Israel, Israel had exactly three tanks at that location on the border. By the time they were reinforced, they ended up with about 40 tanks. And to give you an idea whose side God's on, by the end of that battle, when it was all said and done, Israel had destroyed about 640 of the Syrian tanks. They had shot down over 200 aircraft. They faced a force of over 10,000 men, more than 10 times as much armor, and the tanks that were facing them had night vision and they didn't. And in fact, even that worked to their advantage because they figured that if they ran their tanks in reverse, all that they had were red taillights, which they could see by at least within a 100 meters or so. And so they would back towards the enemy, turn their turrets around, and fire at point-blank range. Over one half of the kills during that battle were inside of a 100 meters. If you know anything about tank forces, that's not an ideal distance to have a tank battle at. And so as that battle ensued, you, you see the ferocity of the Syrians towards Israel to this day. If you go to the region of the Golan Heights right now, if you and I were to take a trip there, which Connie and I did in April, that's what you see. The whole area is still filled with landmines. The whole area has military outposts all over every ridgetop. You look at it and there's just tons of intelligence gathering capability that Israel has along that border. Why? Because Damascus is still a threat. It still intends, if it can, to destroy the nation Israel. Amos saw that. It was true then. It is true now. It will remain true until the Lord Jesus fights the final battle himself. And so our worldview is to be shaped by our Bibles. If you look at the, the accounts, and you can just Google Oz 77, and you'll, you'll get the history of this amazing defeat of the Syrians. By the time the, the Israelis advanced, they had gotten within 30 miles of Damascus. Every time Israel has been attacked by any of these nations that we're going to look at tonight, Israel has prevailed. Why? Because God said so. What God says, God does. There's no explanation for the Valley of Tears other than God did it. And so as we look at what we're seeing tonight, it's important that we don't dismiss it. Because the Syrians had Russian T-55, T-62 tanks. It wasn't until the Israelis 
uh, garnered a handful of British centurions that the tide changed. And in a, in a matter of time, you, you look at what happened, you, you cannot say anything but, thus says the Lord. There's no other explanation for it. The second group, as we move to verse 6, Gaza. Y'all have heard that name, haven't you? Uh, it's the home of the PLO. It's the home of Hamas. Uh, it is that strip of land that Israel gave back, attempting to make peace with the PLO and Hamas. It was fully inhabited by Jewish settlements. It was completely occupied with farming kibbutz. There were hydroponic gardens everywhere, schools everywhere, cities fully built, infrastructure there, and Israel said, look, we want to make peace, and so they give up Gaza. Thus says the Lord, verse 6 says, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now again, listen to what's being said. God, thus says the Lord, God says, Gaza's in trouble until the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, makes it so. Because they took captive the whole of captivity, because of their animosity towards Israel, to deliver them up to Edom. You see, at that time, the Philistines inhabited that area. And the Philistines were known to take the Israelites captive, and rather than do anything to them themselves, generally speaking, they would send them as captives to Edom. Genetically, we'll look at them as a group that's actually part of the Jewish people genetically. But I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, which will devour its palaces, and I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish." So when someone says to you that Gaza is not the land of the Philistines, you can point them to this passage. It is the land of the Philistines. It was known then as it is today Palestine, but it contained the enemies of Israel. And so it's representative of all of Philistia, modern-day Palestine. And he invokes again the sevenfold formula of their demise. Look, you're against Israel. You've always been against Israel. You're going to get destroyed, period. And if you believe that that was just then, during the rule of the Philistines, and if you read Second Chronicles 26, and you look at these cities, whenever those five Philistine cities, that was it, those are the five biggies, when they're mentioned, Gaza is at the lead every time. Why? Because it's been a thorn in the side of Israel since day one, it remains so to this day. And so it's strongly fortified. It was a very important town. It was along the coastal trading route. And so if you left, and we're going to get to them in a little bit, if you left from the ports of Tyre and Sidon in modern-day Lebanon, uh, you were there in what was then the Phoenician Empire, and you traveled by land, you traveled down the coast through what is now modern-day Israel, along the coast through the Roman cities of Caesarea Maritima, there on the coast, uh, down along through Jaffa and to Gaza, and ultimately you would come to Egypt. It was the main trading route along the coast. 
The ships plied that section of the coast, but there are very treacherous winds in that area. You don't think about giant surf in the Mediterranean, but when we were there in April, there was six to ten foot surf along the coast of Israel. Very large surf for that time of the year. And so the winds were fierce. So during the springtime, when the winds blew, they would take the coastal route. And so Gaza had a very important uh, route that was traveled through it, and it was a trading route. And so God pronounces judgment. They delivered their captives to the Edomites, and the Hebrews normally got the worst of that end of the deal. And so now what do we know about them? You you see, what we really see uh, is this. People constantly, the UN constantly, the world constantly is saying, Israel, 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 you got to stop doing this. You got to quit bombing that. You need to stop uh, invading other lands. Let me remind you that it is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was given to the Israelis. It is God's land, and they are supposed to occupy it. And if you look at Hamas today, since they withdrew, the Israelis held that land. It was captured in 1948. They were attacked the day after they declared peace. In 1967, they're then again attacked by every one of their Arab neighbors. The Jordanians come into Jerusalem. They have the Temple Mount. The Israelis drive them from the Temple Mount, the famous photos of Moshe Dayan standing on the Temple Mount saying, The Lord has returned to His place. They then give up the Temple Mount because they don't want to make enemies. So you know what? We we want to live at peace with all of you guys. Now, they were attacked when they became a nation in 1948. They're attacked again in 1967. And they repel the enemy all the way back to their principal cities. They push the Syrians all the way to Damascus in 67. They went all the way to the capital of Lebanon. They pushed the Jordanian army all the way to the other side of the Jordan River into modern-day Jordan. And they pushed the Egyptians out of the Sinai back into Egypt. And then they say, but it's all Israel's fault. The world is ignorant of what God's Word says. God's Word says that because of what those people have done, very specifically the same people that are there today declaring we are Palestinians, that is to align yourself with Philistia, with the Philistines, and to say, we hate Israel. And so what do they do? Israel gives them back the land, says, fine, we want to be nice since 2005. More than 8,000 rockets have been fired into Israel. 8,000. Do some simple math. It's a whole bunch of rockets. It's more than one a day. Almost half of the total Israeli population is within range of very primitive rockets fired out of Gaza. And yet it's Israel's fault. It's not Israel's fault. God said that they would have enmity with Israel. It remains so to this day. 
Ashdod, Ekron, Ekron. King Uzziah had already gone in and kind of straightened them out a little bit. And he leaves, and he did the same thing that the Israelis did in 2007 and got exactly the same result. God has pronounced judgment. That judgment will stand. Keep your eye on Gaza, because when you look at this area of the world, it is exactly as God said it would be. It's playing out the way the Lord said it would play out. God said they're not going to be victorious. As you look at what's transpired in the last several years, uh, you've been reading since, actually since 2005, there were around 8,000 rockets. Since they began shooting rockets, which was 2001, about 12,800 rockets have been fired into Israel. It's killed a little over 400 or so Israeli citizens, done millions of dollars of property damage, but more importantly, causes them to live in terror every single day. Now I can tell you what would happen uh, if this same type of thing, you know, all of a sudden, you know, somebody in Chihuahua decides that they're going to start launching rockets into the United States. We're going to put up with that for about 10 seconds. The first one's going to be a freebie, which we will shoot down in midair. The second one, whatever shot it, is going to cease to exist. And we're going to declare national sovereignty. But our president finds it necessary to chastise Israel for using an F-15 or an F-16 and a smart bomb two days ago to take out yet another leader of Hamas. God said it. I believe it. They keep launching rockets. You can count on them getting blown up. Because God says he's going to turn their walled cities into fire. So as long as it keeps going that way, as long as Israel does not occupy that land and terrorists do, the terrorists are in trouble. And we need to be on the side of Israel, not on the side of the terrorists. Period. The next city, modern-day Lebanon, Tyre. It's off the coast. It's on the coast of modern-day Lebanon. It says, Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Again, same. I will not turn away punishment. I'm not going to do it. Because he delivered up the whole captivity of Edom. In other words, when the Philistines took the Jewish people captive and sold them to Edom, then the People that were living then in modern day or in older day Phoenicia then bought them as slaves from the modern day Jordanians. It still goes on today. Well, you can't occupy the Golan. You can't occupy the West Bank. You need to get out of Gaza. These are all the same places that are being fought over today. They did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. You see, God had spoken whose land it was. That settled it. It settles it for me today. It should settle it for everybody today. It doesn't settle it for everybody. And so the result is exactly what your Bible says. I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. You see, Tyre of Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, one of the most powerful, uh, really, city-states is what it actually was. It's primarily a single city, Tyre. 
twin city was Sidon. Uh, They're on the Mediterranean coast. And as they began to push forward and began to explore, the Phoenicians ultimately traveled all the way to Great Britain. These are tremendous seafaring people with immense power. By 1972, if you were to look at the cultural population of what is modern-day Lebanon, almost half of its population was Christian. Do you know how much of it's Christian today? Less than 10%. you know how much of it's Muslim today? The 90%. Do you know how many of them are ethnically Phoenicians? About 10%. Do you know how many of them are ethnically Iranian descendants? Almost 30%. You see what's happened is, is God said that this nation of the world was going to be at odds with Israel. And for quite some time, King Hiram uh, made peace with the king of Tyre and really admired, actually, Israel. And they they had some form of an an agreement. But by the time it was all said and done, uh, basically what happens is Israel thinks it has a friend on its northern border. Anybody know what's going on right now? They claim to be a friend of Israel. Well, we're really not your enemy. You know, this is just the bad guys down along the border. And so the 2006 war begins in Lebanon. Who gets chastised by the UN? Let me give you a hint. It wasn't Lebanon. It was Israel. Well, you're moving aggressively. You're using all these modern weapons, and you're attacking these poor defenseless sheep herders. Those poor defenseless sheep herders are the same ones that several months ago launched chemical weapons against their own people. Those poor defenseless sheep herders are the ones who possess uh, SAM-6 mobile missile launchers that can shoot down F-15s and F-16s. Those poor sheep herders, those poor people that you know live there in peace along the border are the ones who came into Israel, captured Israeli soldiers tortured and killed two of them, and then let the other one go wounded. And yet it's Israel's fault. They retaliate with massive force as they begin to realize, look, this isn't going to go away. And the Sarit Shaluta, uh, it's just an amazing action that the Israelis undertook. And if you understand the Israeli practices of, of these incursions, they intentionally go after high-value targets. And, of course, those high-value targets, because of who these enemies are, are normally in schools, mosques, hospitals, and anywhere else that there would be a tremendous amount of human casualty should the Israelis choose to retaliate. All the Israelis are doing is protecting themselves, and yet they get blamed for making war on their neighbors. God's word says that these people hate the Jews. They will continue until their city walls are burned, and that is exactly what you see today. Ultimately, by the time 2006, that war ends, uh, there were almost 1,100 Lebanese citizens that were killed. Over $3 billion worth of damage done to southern Lebanon. Uh, On the other side, the Israelis suffered 42 civilian casualties. Lost a couple of planes, some armor, uh, but largely it was an Israeli victory. Why? Because God said he's on their side. 
and they can't keep doing these things. And when they do, God's going to protect Israel. And history proves that God is doing exactly what Amos saw would happen. And so when we look at our world, we look at it through the lens of Scripture. By the time we get to just recently, in the last two weeks, when you look at what's going on, uh, it's it's monumentally insane that the UN is actually saying to Israel, you need to give them more land. Now we have made it we have made a trip, a circuit, if you will, uh, all the way around what is modern day Israel. We come now to the eastern side, to Jordan. And as you look at the Jordanians, this is where it gets rather interesting. Because if you remember your Bible, uh, they're genetically linked through Esau. Uh, This is the land of the Edomites. Uh, These are actually genetically Jewish people. They're they're directly related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so as you look at the Jordanian people and you look at modern-day Jordan, uh, we now come to those who are uh, considered family, really. And so verse 11, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he has pursued, notice this, his brother by the sword. Edom, Ammon, Moab, genetic kinship. And God had impressed actually upon them very early on. Numbers chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 2. Don't mess with them. They're actually your brothers. You you need to try and be nice with them. And then Saul and David both launched campaigns basically to drive the Edomites back across the Jordan River. Uh, They were defensive because the Edomites were attacking the the Israelites. And so they forced them back across the river. Go back to Jordan. And so he says, cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. In other words, it isn't the Israelites that are a problem. It's the people in Jordan that are the problem. They've kept their anger. They hate their brother. They will not live peaceably. I will send fire upon Taman which shall devour the palaces of Basra. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. And I will kindle a fire against the wall of Rabbah, and shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity, and his princes together, says the Lord." So as we look at the world today, they have an absolute hatred for the people of Israel. And the strange thing when you talk about these nations, the Edomites descended from Jacob, uh, from Esau's Jacob's twin brother, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they're descended from Lot, from Abraham. These are their kinfolk. They're not strangers. They were brothers, literally. They've always opposed the Hebrews. All of them held territory on the eastern side of the Jordan Valley. And if you go there today, it is staggering the difference between Israel and Jordan. There there are spots you can literally throw a rock across the other side of the Jordan River. And you look on one side where the Israelis have farmed, where the Israelis have irrigated, where the Israelis have planted 
orchards, and the whole valley is basically a giant agricultural section of Israel. And you look on the other side, same water. The Israelis have given them the same water rights that they take. And you look at it, and at night, the Jordanians come across on the Israeli side and steal everything that isn't nailed down, take it back to Jordan, and it still looks like a dump on the other side. They hate each other, but they're kind of nice. And so rather than Israel firing, you know, on those poor robbers that come across, swim across the Jordan River and go steal a bunch of irrigation pipe, they kind of do the border patrol thing and just deport them to this day. They're trying to be nice. And yet it was the Jordanians that actually captured Jerusalem during the 67 war. It was the Jordanians that they, had, they forced off the Temple Mount. And so Amos denounces first Edom, and he expresses that brotherhood, that kinship. And, and as these nations gather together, in, in the same way today, and you can see this when you just look at the Arab world, Arabs don't really even like each other. They, they kind of hate each other. Each specific group of Arabs is has a high degree of animosity towards other groups of Arabs. The Yemenites don't like the Kuwaitis, and the Kuwaitis do not like the Iraqis, and the Iraqis were actually at war with the Iranians. You remember that deal? The Syrians can't stand the Turks, who are actually Muslims, and the Turks, who are Muslims, don't like the Iraqis on their border. And the Lebanese and the Syrians only like each other because they share weapons frequently from time to time. You have the Egyptians who kind of are standoffish towards everybody. But there's one thing that will bring them together, and you've seen it three times in history. And that's the hatred of Israel. They gathered together in 48. They gathered together in 67. They gathered together in 73 to attack the smallest of all of the Middle East countries, Israel. And yet the world says, well, you know, it's just coincidence. It's just coincidence that in all three of those wars, a superior force with literally billions of people, about two billion people at their disposal on the Arab side, a landmass more than a thousand times larger, Weaponry in excess of ten times the size of the total defensive force of Israel attacks this little tiny nation, and all three times they get whooped. God's word says it. For three transgressions and four says the Lord. There's only going to be one time in human history where there's going to be success. These nations will ultimately gather together and they will attack once again Israel. But they will be led by Russia that time. Good news is, if you're here tonight and you're in Jesus, you aren't going to be here to see it. Praise God. Because they're going to have a momentary victory. And then the Lord Jesus is going to come back and make good on all of these passages of Scripture one final time. For four transgressions and three, your walls will be destroyed. 
And when the Lord comes that time, he's coming with the sword, not with the gospel. He's coming back as a, as a king arrayed for battle on a white horse with his name written on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he ain't taking no prisoners. He's coming to deal with finiteness. That he has come for his children Israel. Those whom this day the Lord aches for grieves for, the one about whom Romans 11 says one day all Israel will be saved. You see, it's important that you realize what God spoke 2,700 years ago is still true today. And so he begins with Edom. And as the Jews increased in severity in their battling and skirmishes across the border, uh, it was a worse fate than any to fall into the hands of their own brothers because there was no end to the treachery there was no end to the torture they pursued their own brothers with the sword and in reply to Edom's undying malice at that time God brought the Assyrians and the Assyrians did the fighting at that time God would then bring the Romans and the Romans did the fighting And then God would actually allow the Israelis themselves to push them back across the border. But they still hate their brother. Ammon, Moab. So we finish up tonight. Shameful beginning. So much so that neither country basically ever got over their, their initial start in the world. To be a Moabite was to be cursed, according to the Jews. It was one of the worst stamps of mankind that you could receive. If you were known as a Moabitess, uh, as a woman, it was akin to saying, you're just about as worthless as you know one. Her name was Ruth, yeah? And yet, ultimately, we find that from her, the kinsman redeemer steps into the picture. And so God has always had a hand uh, in this region of the world. And, and to that, uh, they, they indeed indulged in wanton ferocity towards the children. And it was interesting that at that time, they were the principal uh, worshipers of Molech and Ashtaroth at that time. And so they sacrificed their own children. They were, they were the first group of people in recorded history anyway to not value the, the life of the unborn. They would literally cut open women who were pregnant, remove the baby, and then kill the child in front of the mother. Now, I want to make a little correlation here. If God hated the Moabites for doing that, what do you think he thinks about us for doing that? Because I'm pretty sure he has the same disdain for that sin. And I just don't believe that it's going to go unnoticed by God. And people often will ask, you know, well, you're kind of strong. Yes, because God's Word is strong. God's Word speaks the truth to us this day. And I don't think that it's wise. Forget the fact that it's also not godly. It's not even wise to test God. 
it falls in the category of monumental stupidity to see that God has punished whole nations for this sin. Do we think that we're somehow immune? And we can look through the annals of history, both biblical and non, and see that what God has spoken has passed through as true. I don't even need to look at my Bible as the source of the end of these things. I can look at human history and go, this is what happened. Then I look at my Bible, that's what God said. I can look at my Bible and say, this is what God said He would do, and find out that's exactly what He did. We need to stand on the Word of God, family. And what it says, we may not like the conclusion that it comes to. I often ponder in my own heart, like, Lord, when you come back to fight the battle of Armageddon, billions of people are going to perish from the earth by the time that happens. I have a tough time with that. But you know what it leads me to believe? This world is going to get a lot sicker than it is right now. And it's going the direction of getting a lot sicker than it is right now. And so it should make us who know the truth stand for the truth. That's why we, we can't stand idly by while our Supreme Court justices, uh, in essence, judicially legislate from the bench what it is they believe we ought to be doing. There needs to be uproar in the church. And the church needs to move from the church out into the community and ultimately to the State House and the White House. Because if we don't, we got nobody to blame but ourselves. We're to be doers of the word. And that means standing with Israel and standing for the truth of thus says the Lord. I don't hate Jordanians. I don't hate Syrians. I don't hate the Lebanese. And I don't hate the so-called Palestinians. But I do know this, as long as you're against Israel, you're against God. You're declaring with your actions that you are against God. And that is a very bad thing to announce. It's not boded well for any group of people that's ever walked this earth. And for the church to say, well, you know, Israel is not important anymore. Israel has been in, absorbed into the greater body of Christ. They've been replaced by the kingdom age. Is frankly idiotic. You are asking to get spanked by the Lord. He cares about Israel. We need to care about Israel. Amos looked around at his world and he said, Look, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you. This is what will happen to you. North, south, east, and west. And this is what will happen to you. And what he saw happened. And it has happened numerous times throughout the course of modern history. In the last 50 years, 60 years, God's not done. So I encourage you, don't let anyone dissuade you from being a friend of Israel, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, crying out and asking God to, to save the innocent in these lands. 
Because there are, there are a lot of Lebanese Christians still. There are Syrian Christians still. There are Jordanian Christians still. There are Egyptian Christians still. The Coptics are, are hanging on by a thread in Egypt. And I encourage you, the word says what God is going to do in the last days. So that coexist mentality. And it has the Jewish star and the Christian cross and the Islamic crescent. It's an impossibility. Because we don't all worship the same God. We have never worshipped the same God. And there's only one God in the mix that can save, and His name is Jesus. It's at His name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not at the name of Baal Peor. It's not the name of Muhammad. It's not Shiva. It's not Krishna. It's not Vishnu. It's not Buddha. It's only Jesus that saves. And He came for the Jew first. And He still loves the Jewish people. And that's the side we need to be on. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth of it. And God, we have living history. Uh, Most of us here tonight were alive when these modern battles happened. Lord, I remember distinctly being in high school, finishing it up, heading to college, when that Yom Kippur War was fought, and just staggered by the news accounts of what the Israelis were able to do. God, we believe that you are for them and that we need to be for them. And we pray tonight for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we ask for your hand to go about this earth, Lord, just saving the lost. Lord, for your spirit to call and for people to respond and for us to be busy making disciples, not just winning souls, making disciples causing people to know what it is to walk humbly with their God. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We bless you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it, that we can see it, Lord. We know it's true. We bless you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen.